treat for us. Um, Juan Salgado is an alumni of, uh, an alum of Moraine Valley Community College, one of our shining stars that we're always proud to show off. Um, he's the president and CEO of Instituto del Progreso Latino in Chicago. He's a 2015 MacArthur Fellow uh, recipient, so that's the genius grant, so we have a real genius among us, and we were very mm -hmm. proud and excited to show that off when that announcement Thank came, so congratulations. He's a Moraine Valley Distinguished Alumnus, and he recently received the American Association of Community Colleges Distinguished Alumni Award. So that's a national award um, showing off the work of graduates at community colleges. Um, from the MacArthur website, Juan Salgado is a community leader helping immigrants overcome barriers to success in the workplace and build the human capital of their communities through the Instituto del Progreso Latino, which he led, has led since 2001. Salgado works with members of the low-income Latino immigrant communities on Chicago's southwest side. Most adults in these communities work in, me in menial jobs and face formidable barriers to upward mobility. Few have high school diplomas, and many lack the English language skills needed for a GED or vocational training. Salgado has pioneered an education program that adapts the principles of contextualized learning to equip these workers with skills that lead to higher paying employment. And we are excited um, to have him here. Bachelor's degree from Illinois West Wesleyan, Land. master's degree from University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. So with that, please welcome Juan Salgado. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Phil. I really like coming here. Um, I really like coming here because, uh, you know, I, I have to say why the things I do are important to me before I can talk to you about anything else, right? Because it's hard to hear from a human being if you don't know who that human being is, okay? So jobs are important to me because my father had one. <laughs> and he had the same one for like 44 years. He worked in the steel mill. And he had a good enough stable job with health care, right? That he can provide for six children, you know, that he and my mother had, right? Me among them. And, um, and he could also have my grandparents live with us, right? So there's eight people in the family. He can also actually have uncles stop in from time to time and have a place to stay while they were getting their feet, you know, on the ground and cemented here in the United States of America. And so, um, and so I think jobs matter, right? <laughs> My father used to say, um, all I need is, and he wouldn't call it a job, he called it a yap. You know, all I need is a good yap. You just give me a good yap, that's all I need, I don't need nothing else. You know, God, good job, and he's good to go, right? And, and that was good to hear him say, right? So jobs matter to me, and they matter to me because they had an important place in my life, right? Um, participation matters to me, right? That's what the topic here is today. And participation matters to me um, because I've seen it in so many different ways and I've seen it in so many different places and it's just kind of electrified me as a human being, right? To see ways in which people participate, um, the different ways in which people participate. Um, you know, starting with uh, my, my, my mother who was really active in the church, you know? And churches are key institutions in civil society, right? Churches provide, um, you know, a, a key asset that for many people, uh, and, and it's a, a way, in many ways a free asset, right? You know, of advice and counsel and community and care and, you know, a, a place where people not only, um, you know, praise uh, the people that they, they're, they're praying to, but also, I mean, the, 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 uh, the God they're praying to, but, but also in living their faith, but also sharing with each other in that, right? 
So, uh, so my mother's participation and my father, my father is a United States Army veteran, right? Who, um, who, who started in a community where I grew up, an organization called Latin Americans for America, right? <laughs> you know, and his purpose for doing that was really to, to, to lift up you know, who he was as a Mexican, Mexican-American, but also say, I'm here to make this land that I'm part of here better every day, right? And so it was really formidable growing up, right, that I had those examples of citizen participation, even in the midst of long work days and big schedules. And, and, and I share that because in my, in my adult work, in my adult working life, in my volunteer work, in my love work, right? One of the things that wasn't mentioned is I spent, um, when, when I got out of, when I, when I got out of, I grew up in Kell Park. Anybody know what Kell Park is? 125th and Ashland, right? Okay, so I grew up in a white community that quickly turned to an African-American community. Um, I grew up in a Latino household, but I really grew up interested in what was happening in, in the civil rights movement, you know? Uh, when, um, uh, w when I experienced racism, I actually experienced it more uh, against African Americans than I did against Latinos. In fact, the first time I felt like, oh my gosh, you know, is when I went to California. My sisters were working with migrant farm workers as teachers. Um, and, uh, and I'll never forget my reaction to it was, I told my sister, Rain, I said, I don't like California, you know. Because out here, you know, and this is literally how, you know, because you're raw when you're young, you know, you're kind of really raw. <laughs> you're just like, man, out here, you know, Mexicans are treated the way blacks are in Chicago. Because that's the way I felt, you know, because I hadn't seen the level of, if you will, hatred against Mexicans like I saw against African Americans growing up. You know, it was very visible, right? I saw it when I was in California. It was a little more deep, right, and strong. Um, so, uh, so those experiences inform, you know, what, what you do today. Uh, there's two others I want to share. One is I spent three years in East St. Louis, Illinois, um, a primary African-American community, knocking on doors, working with a Baptist church and a Methodist church, um, trying to revitalize a community that was really in need of revitalization. And I learned so much, right? Like the stories you hear from East St. Louis, you know, if you just listen to the media and you listen to you know, people, you, they, they're not the stories I know. The stories I know are actually the stories of the people in those churches, the doors I knocked on, the families I talked to, right? And those stories are very different from any story I, you know, I've ever read about, right? You know, and about East St. Louis. And so I learned that you, know, you can't judge a people, you, know, you can't judge a place, you know, until you actually go in and you talk with those people and you talk to that place. And so, so I spent a few years, um, you know, after that um, experience in East St. Louis, getting deeply engaged in the immigrant rights movement. So I spent 10 years as the chairman of the board for the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugees Rights, which is a statewide coalition that works on immigrant rights issues. And I was doing that from 2002 to roughly 2010, right? Um, a period where a lot happened, right? Um, you know, we had 9-11, we had, you know, we had the censorship bill, we had marches going on, we had 
we had a really turning of a corner as it relates to immigration reform. So I'm giving you that, and of course I run an organization in the Latino community, right, which you just heard about. So I'm giving you that as context to the human being um, and a little bit of my frame, right, around this topic of today, which is around, you know, participation, right, civic engagement, participation. And we're going to talk a little bit about 2016, right, to make it, like, fun, okay? Um, but, but let me just start out by talking about the way I think about participation, right? And I think about it all the time. Um, you know, in fact, I, I was a college student at University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, and um, I actually, there was this National Conference on Citizen Participation, and I really wanted to go. So I got all the money I had, and I got on a train all by myself, right? And I signed up for this thing, right? It cost me $75 and plus 25 or whatever. And people were coming from all over the country. And I, you know, found a place at a hostel to stay, right? And I had a cool time. It was the first major conference I went to, you know? And uh, just because I was interested in what's happening in the space of people participating, right? Because, but because to me, that's democracy, right? You know, and, um, and, and democracy, not just from the standpoint of voting, right? Democracy from the standpoint of dialogue, right? And of relationship, right? And, um, and, and I just got turned on by East St. Louis, turned on by my father, turned on by this national conference, and ever since then, I've just been turned on to what it means to actually engage, right? Engage with each other. And, and to me, that's what citizen participation is at the end of the day. It's that civic engagement is about engagement. And, it, and it, um, it's not always in neat little packages, right? <laughs> like sometimes we do have, you know, fundamental differences in the way we look at things and the way we view things and the way we might solve something, right? A little later on, um, I'll talk to you about even differences in the immigrant rights movement and how we solve things that actually got in the way of progress, right? Um, so even like-minded people with the same goal can get very close to a goal and end up having that not happen <laughs> because of differences in how to get there. But, um, but the building process, right? If you cannot begin the building process, right? And, and I hear I say the building process of a nation, if, if the component parts aren't active in it. So one of the things to worry about the most, right, if you're talking about like a Latino community perspective, is 30-something percent. I think it's like 35 percent. So you say, what's the 35 percent Juan's worried about? It's the, 30, it's the lowest voter turnout among Latinos in the United States in this age demographic. What's the age demographic that is voting at 30 Four to thirty-five percent right now. What would you say? Okay, that's close. Yeah, it's 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 uh, eighteen to twenty-nine. That's what the way they define, right? Like eighteen to twenty-nine, right? Is voting at like thirty-something percent, right? And so, uh, if you look at Latino professionals, people with education like me, voting at seventy to seventy-five percent, right? And so. We got a real issue in our community right now, in the Latino community, because the voice is not really that strong when it comes to voting, right? But, um, but there's a lot of other voice, right, that comes beyond the voting. So I'm going to come back to the voting, but I want to I talk about 
um, what I've actually, the stories of what I've actually observed um, that are really powerful. We did a, uh, that's a really inclusive way of, of thinking about you know, citizen participation. Uh, the first voter drive that I was involved in um, in Chicago uh, was, was inspired by a guy who was sent out here from the United Farm Workers. And uh, what the United Farm Workers did, because they had a problem, these are farm workers that don't have the right to vote. <laughs> they're undocumented. They're out in the fields, right? There aren't a whole lot of people out in the fields, so their numbers aren't even that strong, right? So how do they get attention to their cause? They're undocumented. They have no right to vote. They're isolated from all of society. What can they do? So they got real creative, and they showed up on the weekends in cities with, uh, um, with ironing boards, planchas, you know, with ironing boards, right? And they stood outside of churches and laundromats and anywhere people were at, and they had their planchas, they had their ironing boards. But their ironing boards were full of voter registration cards, okay? And their message was really simple. I can't vote. <laughs> um, you know, you're coming to buy your groceries. I'm in the field bringing those groceries to you. Here I am. <laughs> this is me, you know. I'm this beautiful, wonderful human being. And by the way, there's my children, because they weren't going to leave their children <laughs> over the weekend, right? So here are my kids. Here's me, you know. And, and, and the voters in the city, the practical problem we have, which is still kind of a practical problem, is you have these voters in the city that were, that were underperforming when it came time to voting, right? Voting at roughly 50%, okay? And so they needed to motivate and inspire those voters. And so uh, they used the tool they had. They used a voice. They used their story. They used the strength of their presence in order to motivate others to do something that others had the power to do but weren't exercising the right to do. And, and when this, um, and I was doing organizing immigrant rights, when this organizer was telling this powerful story of what the farm workers had done in California to really get and register to vote, right? Um, he was telling it so that, you know, we would be clear that when we're doing our voter registration, some of the best voter registrars, although they can't actually fill out the form, don't have the right to vote. <laughs> but the most powerful voter registrars, the people that can get you the most voters to actually register and turn out, you know, um, aren't citizens of the United States. And so go find those people, folks, okay? You already have them, right? You're just not seeing them for all the power and glory that they actually have, right? And it was a real powerful moment. And I think, um, and I think if you think to what we've done in, in, if you will, overall in immigrant rights movement, the more people have shared their stories, the more dreamers have come out and said, I'm, I'm sharing who I am, I'm unafraid. The more families have told their stories of separation and deportation, right? You know, the more powerful, right? And by the way, those families don't just tell stories. Those families are, you know, critical actors in their churches like my mother. They're critical parts of local organizations. And so the power of participation, right, is really um, open to, uh, to, to people when our, when our organizations 
open up our minds about what's, what's, what's possible, right? So that's one message I want to make sure that you know, I share here, right? That, um, that, that it's really important for us to galvanize all of the community um, when we're talking about you know, overall civic engagement. And it's really important for us to, um, to try to figure out how we uh, come together um, in major ways. I, I want to share that the, um, your, your experiences inform your outlook on life, right? <laughs> and, and how you, um, you actually look at the world. And so, uh, so you know, one of the things that was really important when we were building the Immigrant Rights Coalition is making sure that it was very inclusive right, that all voices are at the table, right, um, that while the Latino community is the largest, right, that, that, that all voices were at the table, and, um, and that, you know, we were working with the most vulnerable among us, right, uh, and, and, and capturing moments to be in solidarity with each other when people were most down, right, um, and so, so that's a really important you know, uh, when you're talking about participation, um, it's the coming together of communities uh, that, that really, um, you know, brings together great power, if you will. Uh, I remember right at, shortly after 9-11, uh, we, we did a major event at, um, at Navy Pier. We had about 5,000 immigrant leaders there. Um, and we, we made an important statement because there was a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment at the time. Um, and we made an important statement to the Mexican community, which was the bigger part of the audience there, that, um, that, that you know, when a Muslim is attacked, we are Muslim, <laughs> right? Um, and when a you know, Mexican is attacked, we are Mexican, right? And this relates to uh, what's going on today, right? <laughs> in our environment with 2016. So I want to get to that a little bit. Um, so, so for me, the frame is a frame of understanding among communities. Um, when you're talking about participation, right? Uh, you're talking about how do I gain an understanding of a community that um, I may not know? How do I reach out to people that may have a different perspective, right? How do I bring disparate interests to the table, right? Uh, all of those things are part of the universe of, you know, how do I take my values and beliefs and start to uh, put them into concrete things that might make the world better? And, and how do I join forces with others in the process of doing that? That's why we participate, right? We have to participate in a democracy because we want to bring our values and beliefs into the public sphere, right? And in the process of bringing our values and beliefs into the public sphere, we start to join with others. And their perspective sometimes informs and changes and makes ours even more and more dynamic and more and more strong. So um, I couldn't tell you, right, that when I started off on the journey, of immigrant rights issues. I came from a very narrow perspective, which was what I knew was happening in my community to certain people in my community. And then as I emerged in that process of being part of this larger 
you know, democracy and this larger movement and this larger gaining understanding from others, I started to learn about all kinds of other issues, right, um, that other communities were actually facing, right? And so it broadened my knowledge base and my experience base and my ability to think about and also discern who would be the best people to lead us, whether it's in local or national elections. So the big benefit to engagement, right, and civic engagement um, is the relationships that you develop, right, the journey that you're on, the stories that you will never otherwise uh, be able to, you know, be a part of you because those stories become a part of you, right? Um, the people's story becomes your story, your story becomes theirs. And, uh, and, and, then, and then the power that comes with having better CRISPR knowledge, right? That gives you better informed choices um, in, the, in the public sphere, right? So I value it greatly, I invest in it. You know, you say, you know, your, your, what's your biggest investment is your time, right? Because that's the thing that we have most limited, right? You can, you can everybody, you know, you richest person in the world, you can have limited money, right? Unlimited money, or you can have limited money, but we all have limited time, <laughs> right? That, that thing, that clock runs out, right? I don't care what faith you're in or, you know, what God you pray to or not, right? That clock runs out. We don't have limited time. So I invest in civic engagement because the returns on that investment, the returns in time are phenomenal. From a human growth standpoint, they have been a treasure. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't, you know, if you say, I'm going to give you a million dollars, and you take away all those experiences that you had, and I'd say, no way, take your damn million. <laughs> I'll take those experiences. You know, that's how, that's how valuable a treasure they are, right? And that's an important message that I want to send. And, and anybody can tap into that treasure, right? You just have to decide to invest some time in it. Even my parents tapped into that treasure. And my dad worked 12-hour days, you know, six days a week, you know? So if he could do it, you know, with his kind of schedule, working in a hot steel mill, you know, people can do it. Uh, if farm workers can do it, <laughs> you know, after the long days and hard works that they do and then spend their weekends going into cities, then, you know, we can do it, right? And, um, and so that's a big message. I don't want to belabor that point. I want to get into 2016, but any questions so far? Because I'm supposed to land this by 11.45 and I went on too long. Any thoughts, any questions? Yeah, those are great questions. <laughs> so, um, you know,
coalitions are fragile things, okay? Um, you know, so yeah, the, 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 the immigrant rights coalition's still around. Um, you know, we're still active with it. Uh, you know, to, to be quite frank with you, the movement has moved in a different direction um, in order to get a bill passed, basically. And I could say more about that, but, but the direction has been, we, we, um, we turned the corner. I need to give you guys a historical piece about this, but you know, when, when, this, when this issue really first you know, started to surface, it was 1996. We had, a, we had a march downtown, we had a march in DC. I had just gotten out of college, you know? And uh, I remember getting in my car with my wife and driving to DC, just to be a part of it, right? Not to be a leader in it, right? Just to be a part of it. Um, and, and, and lo and behold, you know, five years later, I'm president of the Illinois Coalition, right? But, but because you keep at the things you care about, right? Um, and so, getting on the theme of keeping at the things you care about, we, uh, in order for us to get a bill, right, uh, we need to have allies right now. So our focus has turned to, um, to what we call Bible badges in business, <laughs> the three Bs, right? So uh, because we need Republican votes to win comprehensive immigration reform. You're just not going to do it with Democratic votes. And to get Republican votes, you need people in churches, Bibles. You need law enforcement badges, and you need business with you, right? And so some combination of that gets at the Republicans that we need to join with a large number of Democrats. And so we've been systematically using our energy to actually build those coalitions, so to build those you know, outreach. So you can imagine this immigrant rights movement that came from you know, Blanchas at stores and you know, trying, to get, you know, the, the, trying to get something positive going and then got hit by Sensenbrenner and stood back up at the marches that we had, right? And so we've now turned the corner, right? Despite what's happening with you know, the rhetoric and everything um, in, uh, uh, in, uh, with a lot of the Republican nominees, we've turned the corner, right? Like we are on the offensive, even though it feels like we're on the defensive, we've been on the offensive. You know, we've got DACA, legis you know, da da the, the executive order, we got the DAPA you know, that's trying to be stopped right now by you know, court action. But um, we've got a, you know, just, just a, we've got a whole different dialogue on the Democratic side of the House that we even had before, right, that's much more forceful. You have to remember, Bill Clinton actually, you know, wasn't so friendly to immigrants, right? He signed some pieces of legislation that really were hurtful. The separation of families today, you have to remember that, you know, there used to be something called 245I, and he got rid of it, you know, the whole, uh, the whole rhetoric around no benefits for immigrants, that came in the Clinton era. So we had to turn Democrats around before we can even think about turning Republicans around on the issue. And so, so we've come a long way and we're just evolving. So that's kind of where it is. And, and, when, and when you talk about um, relationships with the African Americans, that's a whole nother subject that I could spend a whole day on. I don't wanna do that today. Um, um, I wanna actually get into, and the reason I wanna do it today is it's very complex. It's very complex because, um, you know, uh, and, and, and I understand the complexity really well, 
you know. Uh, and so we, we, I would just summarize by saying we need to get away from thinking about, uh, thinking about what, uh, what we control versus what we want to create, right? And so that's the major block, right? So if you go city across city, most of the conversation is about control, not create, right? And until leaders shift the conversation, and I would say that's not just true between the African-American, Latino dialogue, but it's more like in society dialogue, where we're having this tug of war about who will control, and meanwhile, you know, we, we don't have enough dialogue about how to create together. And that's the space I'm gonna try to step into over the next few years as a leader, right? You're gonna see me doing a lot more as a leader in that space. Um, but let me just hit a little bit because they wanted me to talk about 2016, right? And, um, you know, I wanna, I wanna say something about voting because while, while I'm a, you know, I'm a dreamer when it comes to citizen participation, and that it's broad and it's inclusive and it's everybody and you know you know this beautiful stories about people showing up with planchas and people but the fact of the matter is you know participation gets quantified and gets counted in one particular place that matters you know it's the one consequential place it's like it's the place where you know the you know you, you take your money to the bank and the bank actually counts it so you know exactly how much money you have, right? And so the place where the money gets counted is at the ballot box. <laughs> That's where the money gets counted. And how much influence you actually have or don't have, right? You know, gets quantified, right? So, you know, there's this talk about the Latino electorate, right, and the growing Latino electorate, and it is growing, right? I mean, it's growing by leaps and bounds, right? Um, 2012, I got the numbers written, but 2012, we had 11.1 million voters that actually cast ballots, Latinos did, okay? Use that as an example of the voting base, right? So, um, how many do you think didn't cast ballots? 11.1 cast ballots of the eligible voters. So I'm not talking about just people, but people that had actually registered to vote, okay? I have 11.1 that cast ballots. How many didn't cast ballots? They had the right to vote. They just didn't show up. What's a guess? We got a guess. What? About the same number, yeah. It's about 12. It was about 12 million, right? So. So we cast ballots at about 48%. So how does that compare to, how does that compare to, um, for instance, in that same election, uh, African Americans cast ballot at roughly 67%. You know, uh, white Americans cast ballots at roughly 64%. You know, somewhere in that range, right? So if you take, for instance, a state like Colorado, right? So Colorado, ton of Latinos in Colorado, right? Uh, the, um, the, the voter participation among non-Latinos, among the general population, was roughly about 77, 78% in 2014 election, right? The voter participation among Latinos was roughly, again, 48%, same, same kind of range. And so 
the, the net of that is basically the, the election itself, the senatorial election, was you know, won by about 35, 40,000 votes, somewhere around there, okay? 40,000 votes. So um, if the Latino community votes at the same rate of all other communities, that's 52 to 60,000 more voters in the state of Colorado. They can actually decide the election, right? So the thing that I often say, right, and that's the accounting, right? That's the accounting that actually happens. That's when, you know, it's kind of like Judgment Day. Um, and, uh, and that's when people notice whether you have power or you don't have power, or how much power you're actually going to exercise or not. Um, uh, and, and whether you can actually get people into office that are, are, are going to look out for your interest or not, right? And so, uh, and so that, and it's consequential. It's very consequential on what does or doesn't happen in your local community, right? And so we have lots of work to do. So there's certain populations in our country right now that aren't participating at the level that is going to be required, not just for their communities. So this is the thing, not just for the Latino community, they're, we're not participating at the levels that are consequential for a society because we need those generations of people to actually be engaged. We need the full diversity of the United States to be engaged. We need the full participation of people to get better outcomes, right? And so it's pretty consequential, um, you know, and, and, and what we've been doing is trying to figure out what are the reasons why what are the reasons why? And so um, I'll give you a good example from a friend, right, who says, well, part of it is how campaigns invest. Because you can blame the people, you know, and I certainly do, by the way. You know, I don't have any bones about it. If you didn't get up and vote, you know, you decided the election. <laughs> who decided the election? The people that stayed home decided the election, right? But they're not the only ones who decided the election. But at the end of the day, you still have that responsibility, and I don't have any bones saying that to anyone who decided to stay home, because sometimes you have to talk tough, right? Um, but, but the reality is, you look at campaigns. Look at the Bernie Sanders and the Hillary Clinton campaign. So, um, so Latino leaders asked both campaigns recently, give us your list of hires. We want to know how diverse your staff is that's reaching out to people to get people to vote from now in the primaries. <laughs> and they said, no, no, no. We're not releasing that information. Here's Democratic candidates for president. They're not releasing the information because it's not good data. <laughs> they don't want to release it, right? So our good friends figured out how to get the data, you know, because, you know, technology, you can now do a bunch of hacking and all kinds of crazy stuff you could do. Well, they got the data, okay? They figured out a way to get the data, and they basically published the data. And it was ugly data, okay? It was ugly data. Campaigns do not hire high numbers of minorities, in particular Latinos, to get the vote out, okay? And so, uh, so they said, we're going to publish this data from now on, okay? And but just doing that simple thing, now hiring of workers on the campaign for both the Bernie Sanders campaign and the Hillary campaign of Latino workers has spiked up really high, <laughs> right? Because now we have an actual metric. So, so what I'm saying is that democracy matters, 
right? But, but we need to look at all the levers that are being pulled that cause one population to participate and another population to not participate. And there are levers being pulled all over the place, you know, prison population, you know, measures, you know, uh, measures that relate to um, trying to turn the clock back on the Voting Rights Act. So you've got a lot of these things that are trying to pick and poke. Um, and and I, I, I want to impress upon that sometimes when you're actually trying to increase participation, the place you have to start with is the place that um, seems, to be, seems to be friendly uh, but, but often isn't. And, and there, um, therein I want to share, uh, I want to share a story because we want to talk about the candidates, right? Uh, and I want to I start with the Democratic candidates because I'm going to pick on them, okay? I want to pick on them, all right, really bad, all right? Um, so, and again, my frame is immigration reform, okay? My frame is, you know, kind of immigrant rights frame. And so, uh, you know, when you're, when you're sitting here today as a Latino, uh, you're looking on the Republican side and you're seeing two Cubans, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, you know, both of them that aren't speaking to our electorate very much. You're looking at um, a Bernie Sanders that, uh, that voted against an immigration reform bill in 2007, okay? Uh, and you're looking at a Hillary Clinton that, that, that somehow got in her head that what President Obama's doing to deport Central American kids and families back to very violent Central American communities that they left because they were extremely violent. They were willing to risk their lives to come on the journey, right? So people aren't, you know, they know the facts. They know that, hey, if I stay there, I could risk my lies, life. If I leave and try to flee, I'm risking my life, right? And so, but, you know, I'm willing to trade this off because this thing is sure bad place, right? And this thing has at least the possibility that I'm going to get to a better place. It's no different than what, you know, Syrian refugees are dealing with right now. And I spent 10 days in Germany, by the way, at a time, um, I was actually there two days after the Paris attacks. I was there when Angela Merkel was still speaking about Germany has no limits <laughs> to its capacity, you know, to care for people that are fleeing persecution, right? <laughs> Which it was, was so, and I spent 10 days with, in, in, in refugee centers, in immigrant serving institutions, um, with mainstream uh, Protestant and Catholic groups that were rallying to help the refugees, and, and uh, and, and man, they had this amazing energy that was like human beings coming to life for the good of other human beings. It was magical. And we were in the chancellor's you know, place, and we got to hear from them, and they were still, two days after the Paris attack, still, we're going to make this happen. We're taking another million refugees next year. This is how we're going to do it, right? 
and it's broken down ever since, right? It's broken down ever since. And so we've got a Hillary Clinton in the midst of this, right, that, that, that may be good with Syria, but she's, she's somehow got in her head that you're going to, you know, you're going to send folks back in order to send a message to people there that they should stay put in a very terrible situation. And that's kind of like telling folks in Syria right now, hey, you know what, you should just stay put right where you're at because you're going to be okay, right? It's almost ludicrous, but she's, she's rationalized that. And you've got, a, you've got a Bernie Sanders that has, um, you got a Bernie Sanders in 2007, right? And I will tell you, we're now in 2016, right? If we would have gotten immigration reform passed in 2007, right, the families, because the program was supposed to be this, okay? You're supposed to go five, five, and five, basically. So it would take you 15 years to become fully legal permanent residents, okay? So you'd go five years where you had to prove yourself, and then you go another five years where you have to prove yourself, and then you get your five years of legal permanent residency, and then you get two years you could become a United States citizen. So think about it. This is 2007. If we had passed immigration reform in 2007, those families that would have qualified in 2007, they'd been the past the first five, almost past the second five, right? <laughs> right? They would be on their way to legal permanent residency and close to on their way to citizenship, okay? And you know how close we were? We were really close. We had a Republican president, George Bush, that was pushing for this, okay? We had Senator John McCain, right? Important senator on the Republican side who was for it. We had Ted Kennedy who was still alive, who was, I'm gonna get this thing done. We had Barack Obama, we had Senator Durbin, we had Chuck Schumer, we had a bunch of Republicans, more than we ever have since. It was like the, the, the heyday of being able to get Republicans. Guys, we were so close. And, and you know what happened? I'll tell you exactly what happened. There's a guy named Bernie Sanders. <laughs> okay? And Bernie Sanders, and it, so it happens that AFL-CIO didn't like this thing called a guest worker program. You know? So there's, and like when you're dealing with compromise, you sometimes have to agree things you don't like, okay? And so the Republicans, the business, right, side of this, wanted a guest worker program. Half a million guest workers, if they're needed. Agriculture, this, that, and another. And the AFL sales didn't want the guest worker program. And Bernie Sanders, not because he's a bad guy, and not because he doesn't believe in immigration reform, but because, you know, from his standpoint, it's inequality, and he didn't want those guest workers to drive down wages, right? So his reason to stop this was that frame that he had, right? That he had worked all his life, you know, this is his frame. I got a different frame. He's got his own frame, right? And so, uh, so Bernie Sanders decides to, you know, ally himself with, you know, Republican from Iowa, Charles Haley or something like that. And they start putting in some some amendments that don't really work, and, uh, and then ultimately they voted against him, Harkin voted against him. So you had a lot of labor Ds, right, joining a few R's, you know, joining a long list of R's, right, Republicans, and we lost the bill, right? And so, um, and so, I mean, to share with you, right, that's like 
the current state, right, 20, 20, you know, going into 2016. And these are the two candidates that we're looking at, right, from a, from a if you will, from an immigrant's rights perspective. Um, and we have to mold them. And the way we're going to mold them, right, is uh, by having that vote, right, and getting increasing numbers of, of people to get, actually get our vote. It's 11.45. I don't know if there's any questions that you guys have. I want to land this in the next few minutes. So um, I'll take any questions. That's all I have to share today. to get a reform bill. I mean, how, how does that, uh, is it led to further alienation or uh, lack of motivation to, uh, amongst the groups that you work with to, to continue to fight or maybe to get registered? Because I know that there's also millions who could be eligible to, to vote but simply haven't been registered. Yeah, so, you know, the, the 2014 elections were really interesting, right? And uh, and this is what happens when people get disenfranchised, right? I mean, this actually does happen. Like, uh, so it was interesting in a sense that people had grown in the immigrant community very frustrated with both parties, okay? Uh, both parties in major ways. Okay, you have a you have a president, President Obama, that just deported more than two million people. Um, he had promised to announce the DAPA uh, executive order back in July. Then he promised to announce it September. And the fact of the matter is that the Democratic Party decided that by dropping it before the election, they would hurt their chances of getting people elected. Right. The consequence to that is that. Uh, you know, Latinos increasingly decided that, you know, wasn't worth it. They were just going to stay home. There was actually a chorus of people saying, we ought to punish the Democrats right. by staying home. You know, that was a chorus that, you know, I heard time and time again. I don't, I don't think, I believe that's punishing yourself, right, um, at the end of the day. I don't think you end up truly punishing Democrats, you know, if, if that's the strategy, I think it's a failed one. But, but there was a lot of sense of suppression and, and just the lack of energy, right? So one of the most exciting things right now, if you think about it from a more global standpoint, um, is just the engagement, the potential engagement, because we, we, we need to actually see it in all the states, but the potential engagement of millennials in this election, right? Um, it's, it's really uh, got... I think a lot of promise, and for Latinos too, because I, I, I just stated, our lowest voting group are millennials, and Latinos happen to be a big part of the millennial population. We're like one in five, one in four of the millennial population as a whole. So, um, so that population getting inspired and actually voting, right? I think, I think the lesson I would share with that population is, you know, uh, what I shared with Troy earlier, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, okay? All right. If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. That's true in negotiations. That's true in voting. So if millennials aren't at the table and they're not actually voting, and the, the promising thing is this election is creating a lot of energy and people are tuned into it, and millennials are tuned into it, and hopefully they'll actually cast that vote. 
that number that I shared in Latinos, 11.1 voted, 12 point something million didn't, that graph changes real quick when our millennial population actually gets engaged in votes. But the one danger is that they start to believe that their lack of participation is actually some sort of tool, <laughs> right, towards to the parties. And that's kind of what happened in 2014. And that's why, you know, I would argue states like Colorado, you know, and I would argue from my own perspective, lost good electeds, you know, um, when they could have, you know, when they could have kept more friendly people in office. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, any other questions? Otherwise, I'm, I'm done. Did I answer, okay. I don't know, did I answer your question? Okay, that's it. So really quick, don't run away, I know there's class. I want to give a little thank you to oh, Juan. This you. is from uh, our president, Dr. Jenkins, sent that thank over. But it. we had booked this prior to um, Mr. Salgado winning the, uh, or being the recipient mm -hmm. of the Genius Grant, and I said, oh man, he's gonna be too big time for us, he's probably going to the White House. And so I emailed him and said, are you still coming? And he said, absolutely, I wouldn't miss it.